Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tanya Reynolds. She is a social psychology postdoctoral researcher at the Kinsey Institute. Her research examines how pressure to compete for social and romantic partners asymmetrically affects the competitive behaviors and well-being of men and women. Uh, through a joint appointment with the Gender Studies Department, she offers courses on human sexuality and sex gender differences. As a collaborative research team with Justin Garcia and Amanda Jesselman, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, she hopes to examine the dispositional predictors and physiological correlates of individuals' romantic relationship experiences, as well as how these associations may differ across gender and sexual orientation. So I guess this will be a very interesting episode <laughs> because it fo it will focus on some of my favorite topics including uh, sexual uh, sex differences let's say so uh, Tanya thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show thank you Ricardo it's an honor to be here <laughs> okay that, that that's already too much for me so <laughs> but, but okay so uh, let's get into the topics i i guess that the i mean one of the things that i find interesting about your work is that you uh, pick up on uh, sex differences in terms of mate preferences, for example, and how men and women compete for mates and against one another, of course, and the impact that that has in terms of the social dynamics that they establish among themselves and also the impact that it has on their well-being. So, I mean, uh, maybe the first thing I would like to ask you is, what are some of the most relevant sex differences that you explore and that you think are the most important ones that have the biggest impact uh, at these levels, at the levels of how people, uh, men and women, establish relationships among themselves and also uh, the ones that have the biggest impact on their well-being. Yeah, so to begin first by sex differences and mating preferences. So it gets back to Darwin's idea of sexual selection, which is just a variation of natural selection describing organisms' likelihood of reproducing, and it manifests in two forms. So there's intrasexual selection, which is just competition between members of the same sex for access to members of the opposite sex. And then there's intersexual selection, which is the preferential choice um, exerted by members of the uh, opposite sex. And so these two processes are interrelated. So the preferences of opposite sex mates shapes the nature of the competition among same-sex individuals. Um, so we compete with our same-sex peers to better and display the traits that are preferred by potential mates. And the domains most valued by mates will produce competition in those domains among same-sex peers. Um, and so if we begin with mate preferences, they basically evolve to allow us to capitalize on the reproductive opportunities afforded by the opposite sex. And so 
these preferences should differ across the sexes to the extent that ancestral men and women faced divergent challenges over the course of human evolution, but they should also converge when men and women faced uh, similar pressures over the course of evolution. So both men and women, for example, have a strong preference for kind mates and kindness is important for facilitating cooperative bonds, including parenting and how kind of a parent you are. Um, but then they also diverge. Uh, so for example, so for women, um, so the preferences diverge among men and women to the extent that there were differential constraints to the reproductive fitness um, for men and women. So for women, one of their primary um, constraints to their reproductive success was their ability to secure social and material resources for offspring. So women should select men for their ability and willingness to invest in offspring um, and should select men who are likely to provide things such as, you know, food, shelter, protection. Um, and so what you find is indeed across cultures, women show a stronger preference than do men for mates with good financial prospects or traits that predict the likelihood of in the future gaining um, good financial prospects or actually having uh, resources such as ambition. So um, basically, as well, because men's uh, status in the hierarchy predicts their access to resources, women should attend to get men's cues of status in the hierarchy. Um, and so to the degree that women show this preference uh, when selecting mates, then men should compete in those same domains to acquire resources and status. Um, and so for men, um, because a huge part of their evolutionary history was competing in coalitions, uh, men who tend to possess um, traits that benefit the group should reap rewards and um, be deferred to by their same-sex peers. Um, so men compete amongst themselves to display traits that benefit the group. So in the case of warfare, this might be physical strength or prowess. Um, but it might also be uh, an intellectual contribution to the group, so scientific discovery. Um, and then other men confer uh, deference to those men who are contributing to the group, um, and they're rewarded with status and resources. Um, so men are competing amongst themselves to signal these traits to women, uh, and so they compete to display their accumulation of resources, and they would also compete to have relative levels compa compared to their same-sex peers. So to achieve a relative advantage, men will derogate one another in these domains that women most prefer, such as other men's financial resources, achievements, physical strength, ambition, cues that women are attending to on average when they're selecting um, their romantic partners. Um, now, on the other hand, for men, um, unlike women, um, their reproductive success was most constrained by access to fertile mates. Um, and so for women, their fertility is confined to a relatively narrow window across the life course. Um, so it peaks in the early to mid-20s and then declines precipitously. Um, and so women's age is inextricably linked to their reproductive potential. And so men have evolved to discern and prefer traits that reliably signal youth or fecundity. Um, and so men, because they needed to ascertain 
which individuals are likely to be second right now. Um, they tend to prioritize physical cues of youth and physical uh, appearance. So women certainly um, value physical appearance as well. These are about just relative differences and the degree to which you prioritize it. So you find that um, across cultures, men tend to prioritize physical attractiveness in mates and the the bodily features that are associated with attractiveness tend to correspond with women's uh, fecundity. So um, this is backed up by relationship formation patterns. So women deemed you know, physically attractive are more likely to secure relationships and more likely to secure relationships with men who possess resources. Um, also, it's backed up by the pattern of um, mate poaching. So the women who tend to be most successful in luring away one another's mates are those who are physically attractive um, and sexually unrestrained. Um, and so women should compete in this domain to the extent that men prioritize it when selecting romantic partners. Um, and indeed, women engage in a variety of appearance-enhancing behaviors. So as just one example, they're like 11 times more likely to pursue plastic surgery compared to men. Um, but it also affects how women feel towards themselves as well as their same-sex peers. Um, so women tend to be more distressed when a same-sex peer um, is relatively more physically attractive um, than they are. Women report jealousy and threat in response to attractive same-sex peers. They'll explicitly report that they feel competitive in the domains of physical attractiveness. Uh, and researchers have argued that perhaps this competition for um, attempting to appear relatively more attractive than one's same-sex peers might contribute to female body dissatisfaction. So if the quality of women's body is a very strong predictor of their romantic prospects, then women should be highly attuned to cues of their relative standing in this domain. So if they feel as though they are um, lagging behind their peers or their peers are meeting these physical appearance standards, this should lead to body dissatisfaction, which ostensibly compels these behaviors um, aimed at modifying uh, one's body in this domain. So you can see that the domains, you can create these predictions that the domains of which mates value are going to also be the domains in which um, same-sex individuals compete to display relatively higher levels uh, to meet those, those mating preferences. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think I focused my question mostly on mate preferences, but I guess that there are other aspects of how people establish social relationships, like, for example, um, their friendships that are also important for the kinds of social dynamics that men and women establish uh, among themselves, right? Like, for example, uh, it might be relevant also to understand how, uh, what are the types of traits that men and women value in friends of the same and even the opposite sex, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a topic that I've become increasingly interested in. So not only focusing on the different pressures on men and women to meet, meet preferences, but also the different uh, social selective pressures that they encounter within their own sex. Um, so one huge contributing factor uh, is coalitionary competition. So throughout 
human evolution, aggressive coalitionary combat, so if we think of warfare, um, was primarily fought by men. So if we look at um, the historical records, all, men are primarily the ones out on the battlefield. So what this means then is men's a huge, portion, a huge portion of their reproductive success was affected by the behavior of their same-sex peers, the degree to which their coalition was successful out on the battlefield. So this shifted men's views towards their same-sex peers such that they should prefer and defer to those with traits that benefit the coalition. So all else equal, uh, group of men who are highly courageous are going to be more successful on the battlefield. Therefore, men should prefer these traits in one another and defer to those who are courageous. Men should also prefer um, men who have a high pain tolerance to the extent that that's useful out on the battlefield. So then you might see that men tend to prioritize these traits among their same-sex peers. Um, and so men are going to confer prestige among those who strengthen the coalition and enhance the likelihood of the coalition's success on the battlefield. And just in general, you find that larger coalitions tend to be more successful. So to the degree that men had strength in numbers, they should also have a relatively low threshold for befriending same-sex individuals and a higher tolerance for transgressions committed by same-sex individuals. Now, that's not to say that men never care about what their same-sex peers do, but they might be more focused on, are these transgressions that hurt the success of the coalition, such as, you know, are you loyal to the group? Are you going to commit treason? Or can I trust that you will be out there um, supporting the team? So men might prioritize same-sex peers' loyalty to the in-group over more interpersonal forms of loyalty. Um, and so if this was the case, that this is a huge part of men's, um, men's feelings about their same-sex peers, well, then perhaps there are also um, similar pressures operating on women. So they might have encountered different selective pressures uh, when cooperating with their same-sex peers. So, for example, a huge, um, or the majority of human social groups were patrilocal, and what that meant is that upon marriage, women left their own natal groups, their kin groups, to go reside with their husbands. And this type of social arrangement was probably useful for facilitating male coalitionary conflict because men are around their kin, um, so it, it helps to strengthen those bonds. But what this meant for women is that they're being taken away from their families to go live with their husbands where they don't know the women who are around them. So their same-sex peers are unrelated individuals, and we know that it's harder to uphold cooperation with non-kin compared to kin. And so Dave Geary has argued that perhaps one way that women facilitated these same-sex cooperative relationships was through reciprocal altruism or mutualism. So perhaps women were um, cooperating on mutually beneficial goals or exchanging benefits in kind of a tit-for-tat manner. Um, and congruent with these uh, contentions, uh, you do find that women um, 
girls and women compared to boys and men tend to show a preference for dyadic relationships. So they tend to, on average, although there's lots of variation, um, prefer more one-on-one -on -one friendships compared to larger groups, which makes sense given that it's easier to track benefits exchanged in a simple one-on-one -on -one relationship than in a larger group where the dynamics get a lot more complicated. But I've tried to outline um, some of the other and think about what other processes might have facilitated um, women's cooperative relationships if they were tended to be in this um, you know more dyadic reciprocal exchange uh, uh, patterns on average. So perhaps they might have developed a preference for symmetry so such that the partners have relatively equal distributions of resources or power or status because in the presence of too much asymmetry mutualism is less possible because partners have competing interests so it devolves into either parasitism or exploitation so for example if a celebrity tried to befriend a homeless person this is an extreme example but it would be very hard to have a mutually beneficial relationship. It would probably just be a unilateral, you know, allocation of resources. It's very hard to have um, similarly aligned goals. So that's an extreme example, but if it might represent um, a, a, a preference or a pressure on women's um, same-sex relationships such that they might prefer symmetry between partners. Um, and there is a wealth of data showing that women tend to, on average, compared to men, prefer more equal distributions of resources rather than um, unequal distributions. Um, and there's some evidence that discrepancies in status corrode female relationships. So for example, there's data from the workplace where female workers tend to be less satisfied when they report to a female boss compared to a male boss, suggesting that this clear discrepancy in status might be undermining cooperation. Um, so Alice Eagley has shown that even women prefer um, male bosses over female bosses. Um, they've also seen the um, patterns where it cuts both ways along status discrepancies, such that higher status women sometimes have a hard time supporting subordinate women. Um, so they've done, uh, Benenson has some really cool work among uh, female researchers finding that uh, senior female senior faculty are less likely to co-author publications with same-sex junior faculty compared to oh. male senior researchers so it's this really interesting pattern there's also this um there are data finding um that female university faculty evaluate their female doctoral students as less committed to their careers than their male doctoral students whereas male faculty didn't show a gender bias suggesting that when there's a clear discrepancy in status, it might undermine female cooperation. And this might make sense if we think, take an ancestral lens, like, okay, well, maybe you just needed to have more similar status in order to promote um, mutually aligned goals. But in a modern context where there are clear demarcations in status, it might compromise um, female cooperative relationships. Um, you, But not only should women, if it's the case that they form these bonds, not only should they prefer similar status among their um, cooperative partner, they should also prefer cues that predict, um, you know, generous, a generous and forgiving exchange partner. So they might attend to things like, how kind is she? And, or, on the other hand, how status-driving and ambitious is she? 
So there are data to support both of those predictions. So women tend to, on average, compared to men, dislike competition in their friendships and see it as more of a problem, and it tends to undermine female friendships more than it does male friendships. Likewise, women show a very strong preference for kindness in their same-sex friends, so it's the number one trait that they list um, when, when describing their ideal friend. And you do see this pattern where, um, compared to men, women tend to show less tolerance for transgressions in their friendship, so they're more likely to um, dissolve a friendship uh, over perceived violations, which might actually be getting more at, like, cues of loyalty or commitment, because... If I have a preference for a kind partner, that's going to tell me how altruistic this person is in general. It's not telling me how altruistic they would be to, to me personally. So it might be the case that women have a strong preference for commitment if they're forming these really um, these dyadic exchange relationships. You want to know, is this person going to defect when their self-interest would dictate um, doing so? And so there is um, data. there are data to support those predictions as well. So... Um, for example, women um, experience more friendship jealousy on average than do men, where they tend to be more worried when their close friend forms another friendship with a same-sex peer. Um, and women do tend to have um, a lower threshold for detecting violations, such that they'd be more quick to um, end a friendship with another friend who spread a rumor about them, tease them about their appearance, or... Um, didn't stand up for them. So suggesting that women are highly attuned to commitment in their same-sex friendships, um, which would make sense. If you need, if you don't know these people, they're not your kin, you need to find some other way of discerning who can I count on and who can be reliable and, you know, isn't going to defect or isn't going to, you know, share my personal secrets with the group. That aspect of the patrilocality in most human societies that anthropologists, I guess, have studied. Uh, I mean, you're referring to a, an article that hasn't yet been published, or maybe when this interview is out, it will already be published, I don't know, but that you sent me titled Our Grandmother's Legacy, Challenges Faced by Female Ancestors, Leave Traces in Modern Women's Same-Sex Relationships. And I guess that um, I mean, you referred to several different things there while you're, you were talking, and but one of them I think you haven't yet yet touched on. That is the self-deception bit, where in the article you and your co-authors talk about how women might have evolved uh, self-deception in this case specifically to these guys, intrasexual competition as pro-sociality. So could, could you tell us about that specific aspect? Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about women were in a tough situation because male investment for children is highly consequential for children's outcomes. So children are more likely to die when they don't have an investing um, father. Um, when their parents aren't married, children have a higher risk of mortality. Um, so male investment was very critical to uh, children's survivorship. And so what you would predict then is that women's, women's primary competitors are other women who might... Um, either outcompete them in attracting a romantic partner or lure away their romantic partner. So with their children's lives on the line, women had to compete for 
the men who were willing and able to invest and not all men are equally likely to stay committed or to invest resources. Um, and so women's same-sex peers were their primary romantic rivals. Uh, so, and I, you know, so women should compete with them in, um, especially they should be predicted by cues of like romantic threat. Uh, is this woman a threat to my own romantic prospects? And that is generally what you find. Um, but at the same time, if women were living in these patrilocal um, residency patterns, then you also need to establish cooperative relationships with your same-sex peers. If you go all in for romantic rivalry and just, you know, defame all, <laughs> all of your same-sex peers, you're going to have a very rough go of it. Other women are not going to respond well to you. You need to cooperate. Um, other women are sources of support. They're sources of, you know, child care. They are um, sources of reputational defense. So it's important to have female allies. Um, and so kind of outline, you know, the criteria by which women are selecting their female allies. And one of the huge predictors is kindness. Women attend heavily to kindness when selecting their same-sex friends. So that puts women in this bind because they need to compete to ensure um, male investment, but they also needed to win over their same-sex peers, and their same-sex peers were attending the cues of kindness. So what I argue is all else equal, the most successful women would be those who could accomplish both goals. How can you compete while also still being perceived as kind and being selected as a friend and a cooperative partner. So what I argue is perhaps the confluence of these two social pressures favored behavioral strategies that allowed women to achieve both goals. And so one um, example that I suggest is, for example, women might guise their gossip, um, which has been argued as a, you know, um, a tactic of intrasexual competition, they might guise their gossip as pro-social concern. So, for example, if I were to tell you, you know, about Becky, like, oh, I'm just so worried about Becky. She's been sleeping around a lot lately and I don't want her to get hurt. I just, I don't want her to get taken advantage of. Now, imagine instead if I had said to you, Becky is such a slut. She's been sleeping around a lot lately and I'm not surprised that men take advantage of her. Now, what you'll notice is I conveyed identical information about Becky, but the way that I delivered it drastically shapes your impression of me. So women could accomplish the same intrasexually aggressive strategy while just guising it as concern, and they would be less likely to suffer the penalties of engaging in malicious gossip. And there's a wide body of evidence showing that we don't like malicious gossipers and we don't like people we perceive as mean. So if you phrase your gossip as concern, then you might be more um, convincing to social partners that you are benevolently motivated. But the best way to convince someone that you're benevolently motivated is to truly believe that you are. So Von Hippel and Trivers have argued self-deception is kind of the human PR system. And the better we are at deceiving ourselves, the more convincing we will be when we try to convince other partners of those traits or benevolent intentions. So what I would argue is that it may be the case that self-deception facilitates women's enactment of these aggressive strategies while allowing them to engage in it without conscious awareness necessarily of what they're doing. 
So you can truly believe you're just worried about Becky and no one knows otherwise. No one knows that you have just ruined her reputation. Um, so if this pattern holds, um, then it might be the case that women's aggression manifests in slightly different ways from men, where it might be either pro-socially framed or um, they might not be aware of what they're doing or they might feel as though they are the victim in this situation. So it might be kind of guised with these pro-social motivations. Um, and there is some evidence supporting that there is a self-deceptive component. So um, John Archer, he's studied human aggression and he found this really cool pattern with relational aggression where the sex differences in relational aggression widen when you use other reports compared to self-reports. So what I think that's suggesting is that others, observers, are better at detecting women's aggression than women are themselves. So if you ask women, you know, um, are you gossiping? Are you giving dirty looks? You might say, no, absolutely not. But then other people, perhaps their victims, notice the behavior and know what's going on. I mean, in fact, Laura Tracy, she interviewed women about their competition and she found that exact pattern. So she would ask women, you know, like, do you gossip about other women? And they'd say, oh, no. And then she'd say, have you been the victim of other women's gossip? And they say, oh, yes. And they were definitely willing to talk about all the times they had been a victim. And so <laughs> there's some discrepancy there in the perpetuation and awareness of one's perpetuation. Um, and so if it's the case, then that might be a fruitful line of future research, looking at the ways that women, when they do aggress, what are the contexts? Is it when you could arguably justify that you were just concerned about someone and that's what motivated you to do it? It was on behalf of someone else's well-being or that you can deny culpability? Is it going to be in situations where it's not easy to discern if the person was intentionally engaging in this behavior? Um, so I think that'll be an interesting direction for future research. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, I was trying not to laugh too much because when you <laughs> gave that example about, oh, if I were to tell you that Becky this and that, I mean, as soon as you, uh, as soon as you framed it, I immediately understood what was going around there. And so the second uh, example that you gave that was much more explicit, I mean, I didn't even need that one, but I, I was just wondering at the same time that maybe I'm very familiar with the evolutionary psychology literature, so I mean, maybe it's obvi obvious for me, but it's not that obvious for people who would be interacting with a woman who would be telling them that sort of thing. I mean, maybe people don't even at least consciously notice that the other person is basically defaming her on the base of, their, of her promiscuity or something like that, right? Yeah, so I actually, I tested it in my dissertation. So I tested both aspects of it. I wanted to see, do women believe they're concerned when they gossip? And indeed, they, um, relative to men, they espouse more benevolent motivations than nefarious motivations. But then I also looked at the other side, the part that you're getting at, what do social perceivers um, assume? And so I shifted, I just manipulated how women phrase their gossip. So in one condition, they would say it neutrally, like, um, Becky has been having a lot of sex lately. And then in the malicious condition, it ended with, what a slut. And in the concerned condition, it said, oh, I'm really worried about her. And so they, I randomly assigned which one they saw. 
and um, and they showed evidence in both directions. So if you say it really meanly, it harms per, uh, people's social perceptions of you. They don't want you as a friend. They don't think you're moral. They don't want you as a romantic partner. Whereas if you phrase it with concern, literally the same statement, just to add a, I'm worried about her, people then prefer you relative to the neutral um, as a friend and social partner and romantic partner, suggesting it's a very viable socially competitive strategy and it works, right? So that would suggest it does work. So when we're interacting with people or even when we're talking about people, we might not even realize that we're doing it. And so if you want to reduce gossip, maybe this is a critical component to say, okay, um, you might truly believe that you are concerned about your friend, but is talking about her helping her in any way? So is it helping her or are you unknowingly tarnishing her reputation by sharing this information? Yeah, yeah, but then the person would say, oh, of course I'm helping her. What are you talking about? So. <laughs> <laughs> right, so they'd be very effective at convincing social partners of that. <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay, so uh, I would also like to ask you about a paper of yours that I guess this will be even more controversial that is titled Competing for Love, Applying sex, uh, Sexual Economic Theory, uh, economic, sorry, theory to Mating contest, uh, Contests. So, I mean, this, I think this is a bit controversial in the sense that basically in the paper uh, you apply sexual economics theory uh, to the mating market and uh, I, I mean women are presented as the sellers and men as the buyers in this case so could you, could you tell us about that and what are the sort of insights that we can get from that from applying sexual economics theory to the mating market yeah so it's um it's basically we expanded upon the original framing of sexual economics. So sexual economics, uh, economics first um, by Baumeister and Voss, they treated sex as the good under investigation and essentially argued that women can be thought of as the sellers, as you noted, and men the consumers. Um, but it's important to note that money isn't the only thing that one could exchange for sex. So you can obtain love, you could obtain commitment, investment, protection, opportunities. So um, there are various things that we exchange, um, including sex or in including money. But that's not the only um, good that's exchanged for sex. Whereas, like men on the on the other hand, can less often exchange benefits for their sex. Um, so. Um, it can be true in certain circumstances, so this is kind of like just a rough heuristic. Uh, there's certainly exceptions. So the original um, formulation of it treated treated it as though there were kind of cartels that um, sellers would collude. Um, so women in this case would collude to keep the value of sex high that they would basically um, kind of want to regulate one another's sexuality so that they could command more when they engaged in sex. So it might be in women's interest to um, regulate and say, hey, don't give away sex too soon because then I have to give away sex sooner. I can't command as much before I engage in sex. Um, and so we kind of expanded upon that and said, well, I mean, cartels aren't very, they're not stable. There's um, their competing interests there because individuals, um, it's a commons dilemma. Individuals have their own competing uh, 
influences and competing motivations. So we kind of instead looking at collusion, we looked at how individuals might compete within their own gender over sex um, and looking at how women might compete with one another to display relative levels of sexual exclusivity. And perhaps that is a component that wasn't emphasized enough in the original formulation that it's not just sex that can be exchanged, there's also exclusive access to sex. So um, saying I'm gonna have sex with you and not other partners. Um, and so women might be competing among one another to display relative levels of sexual exclusivity. And so, um, especially if we consider men's mate preferences. So across history, men tended to prefer cues of sexual chastity. Um, so even when men's families were choosing men's romantic partners, they tended to prioritize female virginity um, and sexual chastity among women. This is probably due to paternity uncertainty. Men can't always be sure that their child is their biological offspring. So men should have evolved to attend to cues um, that predicts the likelihood that they are investing in their offspring. How likely is it that my mate is sexually faithful to me um, versus not? So women might be competing um, to appeal to these preferences to display relative levels of sexual exclusivity. So they might, use, they might derogate one another based on their level of promiscuity to ruin that woman's um, or harm her chances at forming a long-term committed investment. So she will be less able to exchange sex for commitment and investment if you um, use these terms of promiscuous. And there are data to support that indeed if a woman is labeled as promiscuous, it does shift men's um, desire for long-term committed uh, relationships with her. Now, preferences for chastity have been decreasing over time. So um, probably with the advent of you know, birth control or paternity tests or decreasing religiosity. Um, but still, if that was a huge concern over human evolution, then women might compete against one another in that domain. Um, whereas men, on the other hand, um, we also looked at how they compete and cooperate within their own gender to accumulate the resources that you can exchange for sex. So um, men... Um, often throughout history competed in coalitions. So we brought up the point that perhaps it's the case that men's intrasexual competition is less zero sum than women's. So for example, um, I'm terrible with sports, but like, let's say that Kobe Bryant <laughs> arrived in your group. For a man, in some ways, this is terrible because women might find him attractive. Um, but on the other hand, your coalition is gonna be more likely to succeed if you have Kobe Bryant on your team. So in some ways, men's competition isn't as zero-sum. Those really threatening competitors are also your best allies. Um, so highlighting this dynamic, whereas for women, if some beautiful model joins your group, you are less benefited by those traits. You know, she, if anything, just harms your romantic opportunities. You can't, um, it would be less beneficial to you that she is now there. Um, and so we just looked at how the dynamics within gender affect the market conditions for the exchange of, um, of sex for various goods, including money, but also, you know, commitment and love and how, for example, like uh, polygyny versus monogamy might shift these dynamics. So for example, under context of polygyny where men can have multiple wives, 
physical attractiveness might become less emphasized instead of um, maybe sexual chastity. So because men can have multiple partners, it matters less how physically attractive one might be, whereas you might just care more about um, chastity. Um, you might prefer that more and how these market forces might shift what is emphasized and how sex is exchanged for various, um, various goods um, and how uh, men and women might compete with their same-sex peers to access um, the other sex's uh, reproductive affordances, whether it's resources or, you know, sex. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that another thing that you explored in, the, in your work and that uh, people also don't want to talk about or don't know about even is the fact that in romantic relationships, uh, another thing that people do is that they use their own partners as social signals, right? I mean, the, for example, uh, if I remember correctly, men, if they are partnered with a high mate value woman, then they sort of uh, unconsciously use the woman to signal higher status of themselves to other men, right? Yeah, so this was a paper with um, Bo Weingard and Ben Weingard, and I should attribute more credit to them. It was more of their idea, but um, I worked with them on it, and basically it was rooted, this project was rooted in signaling theory, which is about how organisms communicate with organisms, um, and how we can use signals to convey information about ourselves that might be hard to ascertain otherwise. So, and it, they also, if the signals are harder to fake, then we can take them as more diagnostic or honest. So um, because it places costs or constraints on the signaler to give that signal, so we can assume it's more diagnostic of the trait in question. So for example, if someone is driving a Ferrari, we can infer that they have wealth because driving a Ferrari is hard to fake. That is, for people who don't possess the wealth, they can't afford the car payments on top of everything else we have to pay for in the world. Right, so it's a relatively honest cue of the Ferrari owner's wealth because they must be able to get by and afford all these other important goods and, and have the Ferrari. So we looked at whether romantic partners might also function as hard-to-fake signals because romantic partners are also limited goods and it's a very unromantic way of putting it but <laughs> in a competitive mating market uh, people have their choice of partners and the highest quality partners have the highest amount of choice they are going to be scarce and coveted um, and they have the luxury of being discriminating so what this ensures and if we know that people tend to assortatively mate not only on traits specifically but on mate value then what we can infer is that individuals who have seemingly higher mate value mates, we might be able to infer information about their romantic partner. Because we know that if it's a high mate value person, they had their choice and they must have been choosy. So we get, we're almost trusting their choosiness as diagnostic of the underlying traits of their romantic partner. So it allows, we might be able to use romantic partners to make social assessments more efficiently 
especially in a world where it's very anonymous and we interact with all these people that we don't know, it's very hard to figure out, okay, who's, who's intelligent, who's kind. So we might use all the cues that we can to infer um, trait, infer or trait assessments. So um, what we did in these studies was we looked at different types of signals um, to see whether romantic partners showed a similar pattern. So indeed, we found that just as people assume someone with a very high quality watch had higher status compared to someone with a lower quality watch, so too did people assume that um, those with attractive romantic partners had higher status than those with less attractive romantic partners. Um, so we specifically focused on men with physically attractive female partners um, and found that indeed people preferred the, or people assumed those men had higher status when they had more physically attractive romantic partners. But we also looked at, okay, well, if it's used as a signal of status, to whom do men want to show this signal? Who do they, um, to whom are they looking to advertise? And so um, we did this study where we had um, male undergraduates and we told them, you're going to be paired up with this female partner and you're going to pass out surveys on the university and you, you two need to act like you're in a committed romantic relationship. Um, and here is a photo of your partner. And we manipulated whether the female partner was highly physically attractive or less physically attractive. And so we asked them, where would you like to go in the university to pass out these flyers? And so there was one option where it was other, um, an undergraduate location. We considered that would be flaunting. These are showing off the partner to your peers. Whereas there was one where it was just administrative faculty that were older, um, so not your peers, not your relevant um, status competitors. And so we considered that would be concealing your partner. And so what we found was that, indeed, when men were paired with a more physically attractive um, female partner, they chose the undergraduate or flaunting uh, display location. But they also chose a primarily male undergraduate location compared to one that was um, primarily composed of other women. So that was interesting, and it suggests that um, men might use uh, their romantic partners, or at least the physical features of their romantic partners, as a signal of their underlying status to gain, you know, prestige or deference in the male um, the male hierarchy. Okay, <laughs> that's very very. I mean, I don't even know what word to use, but uh, p people that are not familiar with this literature might think that we are just a horrible species because people are just <laughs> exploiting one another. But fortunately, most of these things don't happen at a conscious level, so people are not that awful, let's say. So, <laughs> so uh, shifting gears now a little bit, uh, I mean, we've been talking about uh, mate preferences and how people establish romantic relationships, what they're interested in their partners and also in their other types of social partners like friends and things and people like that. So let's now talk a little bit about the evolution of individual differences because particularly in evolutionary psychology there's this thing that it seems that people are mostly interested in studying 
uh, human universals or universal features of human psychology, right? But then there's also the other side of things that has to do with uh, individual variation and things like personality traits and so on. Um, so and this is this isn't uh, yet or completely explained, right? Where um, personality differences come from, how they evolved, uh, and I mean, for example, there there's the big five that I think is the most prevalent personality inventory that people use in personality psychology and social psychology and so on. And it is basically based on the lexical hypothesis <coughs> where, where people basically assume that the, the traits that people value most in a given culture, for example, are the ones that are the most, uh, also the most evolutionarily relevant ones. And so those would be the ones that would have been selected for during our evolutionary history, but then, uh, I mean, that's uh, a bit of an assumption. There's also the question about uh, the fact that we've been studying lots of things in so-called weird societies, but then when we go and study them in other types of societies, then sometimes they don't replicate and there are people that propose different sorts of personality inventories to, to deal with that sort of problem. But I, I mean, generally speaking, uh, what would you have to say about that, about the, the evolution of personality traits? Yeah, so I think there are kind of two questions here. Like, why do we have personality? Um, what is it doing? And then why do we have variation in personality? Why is that mean? Um, so to the first part, why personality? So some arguments um, take the perspective that personality traits are motivational systems, that they are functional in and of themselves, and they push us towards or away from, towards, you know, adaptively relevant goals or away from threats. So for example, um, conscientious individuals might have evolved a system that motivated them to persist at tasks that are not otherwise rewarding immediately. They endure. Um, extroverted individuals might be motivated to pursue reproductive opportunities by initiating social interactions. Um, now, another perspective, so that would that's arguing the traits are functional. They're motivational systems. Another perspective that isn't, um, these aren't mutually exclusive, but that we have basically evolved to discern personality traits in one another because those predict uh, socially relevant behaviors. So for example, I, um, I can better assess and predict my social partner's behaviors to the extent that I attend to these um, primary traits. Um, and I will better make social decisions if I attend to these traits in particular. So, for example, if I need to decide um, who do I want to trust with my children, I might attend to cues of, okay, well, who is reliable, who is kind, who is um, attentive to threats. So, th these traits allow me to make better predictions about important social behaviors, whereas I might emphasize slightly different traits if I were selecting a leader um, rather than a caretaker. 
Um, and the same logic would apply to mates. You know, it might allow us to better choose a mate. So if I can attend to, well, how kind is this partner going to be? Or how likely do I think that they are going to ascend the hierarchy? I might select different traits. Um, and so basically we've evolved to discern traits and prioritize traits that were relevant to our own fitness and it facilitated our own social choices. But then you could still ask, okay, even if that's so, why do we vary on personality traits? Like why, why isn't there some optimum? You know, we've reached some optimum with hands where most of all humans have two hands. Why isn't that the case for personality? Why do we vary? Um, and so there are different perspectives uh, for explaining this variation. It might just be that there are trade-offs to different levels of traits. So costs and benefits are differentially associated with different levels of each trait where there isn't one ideal. So for example, take neuroticism. You might be very vigilant to threats and that can be great. You might keep yourself safe, but you might also, it might also harm your relationships or impair your health, or you might not seek out opportunities because you're too worried about protecting yourself. Um, likewise for agreeableness. If you're very high in agreeableness, you're going to cultivate a lot of social support, but you might not engage in conflict when conflict is necessary or advantageous. So you might not be able to be a forceful leader or you might be taken advantage of or manipulated. So basically arguing there are costs and benefits, so there's no optimum. Um, there's also the argument that variation is maintained by high risk strategies. So if a trait is like fitness harming on the whole, on average, but for some individuals, they reap high reproductive success from that trait, then it might maintain variation. So take um, risk taking. Maybe on the whole, it's disadvantageous because you risk injury or death. But if you are willing to take a big risk on the battlefield and you dominate the other group, that might highly impact your reproductive success. And so then uh, risk-taking will then be more prevalent in the population. So it might, um, they might maintain variance that way. There is also uh, a life history theory framework um, looking at why there might be variation among uh, individuals in different personality traits. So this looks at how we organisms face trade-offs depending on the extrinsic mortality rate in their environment. So basically, is my odds of, are my odds of dying tomorrow very high? Or can I be relatively certain that it is safe and I will likely live um, for many more years? These are gonna select different, um, different types of traits. So if tomorrow is uncertain, this will favor a more fast life history strategy where I should, I can't afford to wait to delay reproduction, so I should reproduce quickly. Um, and you do see, you do find that it's correlated with like age at menarche, for example. But also, I should diversify um, my portfolio of children. <laughs> it's like at least romantic again. <laughs> so I might engage in more bet hedging, um, where I maximize the odds that at least one of my child or one of my children survives, which is horrible to think about, but. I might have sex with multiple partners um, to ensure that, well, my um, children's genes are quite diverse, so perhaps one will, um, will thrive in this really harsh environment. Whereas if the environment is very stable and tomorrow is more certain, 
then you can afford to delay reproduction and you don't need to bet hedge and you can afford to invest heavily in fewer offspring because you can be relatively certain that those offspring aren't going to die tomorrow. Um, and so you can engage in more long-term oriented strategies and focus on minimizing threats that are controllable. So you might be able to, for example, um, cooperate with same-sex or with actually either sex individuals um, to build a fortress to protect against winter or um, work on more of the controllable threats that are long-term oriented. And so what you would find is then this constellation of traits that vary along this axis of relatively fast life history strategy to, sh um, to relatively slow life history strategy. And indeed, you find that these traits do tend to cluster together within individuals. So age at reproduction, number of children, executive control, cooperativeness tend to cluster together. So this might be then variation in personality might be explained by, well, was there just variation in the degree to which um, the environment had high uh, extrinsic mortality or low extrinsic mortality risk? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go back to gender now. <laughs> and uh, another thing that you've explored in your work is gender bias in moral typecasting. So, uh, I mean, just to avoid doing a very big introduction to the topic, could you explain what is moral typecasting and also what are the differences when people think about men and women in terms of victims or perpetrators and uh, also where's the gender bias there? Yeah, so Kurt Gray has forwarded this um, concept of moral typecasting, where he argues that when we evaluate a moral action, we instinctively cast the involved targets into the role of you know, intentional perpetrator or suffering, suffering victim. And that we have these two, it's basically a cognitive template that we apply when we encounter situations involving harm, where we just assume someone has perpetrated harm onto another individual. And so there's a wide body of evidence showing that when it comes to gender, we have these gender biases where we assume men are more agentic and women, we tend to assume women are more passive or gentle or yielding. Um, and so what we asked is, well, if we have these gendered assumptions, then how does gender shape our application of the dyadic template? Is it cognitively easier to see men as the agentic role or the perpetrator in the case of harm? And is it easier to see women as the victim or the patient or the suffering role um, in the context of harm? And so we conducted a series of studies to examine this to see is there a bias in our application of the dyadic template? And what we found is that across the studies, indeed, when you activate this framework of harm, we more readily assume women are the victims and we more readily assume men are perpetrators. Um, so we even found this when we used um, animated, we used videos with animated triangles. Uh, and what we found is that the more that people perceived one triangle as the perpetrator, that increased their likelihood that they would label that triangle as male. 
And the more that they saw a triangle as a victim, that increased their likelihood that they would label that triangle as female. And then we also use social scenarios to demonstrate that not only do we have these gendered assumptions, but they also shape our responses to <clears throat> moral, or they shape our moral judgments such that when women are harmed because they fit our cognitive prototype of victim, we feel especially outraged and extra sympathy when they're suffering. It's more, it's cognitively easier to detect their victimization. Whereas when men are harmed, we don't sh show the same concern. Um, likewise for the perpetrator role. When men are the perpetrators, because they fit our cognitive prototype, we dole out harsher punishments and we assume they're more intentional and blameworthy. Whereas when women are in the perpetrator role, uh, we don't tend to demand as, um, as harsh of punishments for them because they don't fit our cognitive prototype of perpetrator. And these patterns are backed up by uh, judicial like court hearings. So you can find that if you control for crime severity, female defendants get shorter sentences on average compared to male defendants, even after accounting for you know, how severe the crime was. Um, and so I think you, you also notice these patterns, they're manifest in you know, broader society when we talk about who, you know, who's suffering in society, we tend to focus on all the ways in which men, or excuse me, that women are suffering, and we more readily detect those. So we rightfully acknowledge that there are many fewer um, female world leaders or politicians or CEOs. We can detect those discrepancies, but we less often discuss the discrepancies where men are disadvantaged. So we don't talk about the fact that you know, men are more likely to be homeless or incarcerated or die of drug overdose or drop out of high school or never even go on to college. Um, you, you know, we don't, we don't talk about those same patterns. They even die five years younger on average. Um, and I think it's because they don't fit this cognitive template of suffering victim. And so it's just harder for us to recognize um, men's suffering when it is there. Um, and we even did some follow-up studies that we haven't yet submitted for publication, but looking at some of the social implications of these biases. And we did this one study where we manipulated whether a politician was talking about issues that afflict women versus issues that afflict, afflict men. And all of the issues were actually only true for men. So, you know, men are less likely to go on to undergraduate degrees. They're um, more likely to suffer from, like, substance abuse. We used all of these issues were actually the data support that men have it worse. And what we found is that when a politician talked about men's issues, they saw them as less moral and were less willing to vote for them and wanted to donate less to their political campaigns compared to when they were talking about women's issues, even though it wasn't even true when they were talking about women's issues. And participants even realized that. So it suggests we have this, this bias where we just care so we care more when women are in the victim role than when men are in that victim role. Mm -hmm. And there's no gender difference in the sense that both men and women tend to think in this way about men and women. I mean, both men and women tend to think that uh, women or typecast women as victims and men as perpetrators or less deserving or of their attention or of their preoccupation or or don't even really care about their problems that much, right? 
Yeah, so we did find actually that women tended to show the pattern to a slightly larger degree where they more readily um, identified women as victims and showed stronger responses to women's harm. Um, and so it's tough to say what this is. It could be an in-group bias, but it also might just be the case that women tend to score higher on egalitarianism. And in our separate set of studies, we do show that egalitarianism is a predictor of this bias. Um, so it's hard to say what is driving it, but we do tend to find a pattern in general. There are some studies where we showed slight differences, where sometimes men showed it a little bit more, but on average, we saw that female participants showed the bias to a stronger degree. Mm -hmm. So this literature on moral typecasting, I think it uh, makes a good segue to my last question or the last topic I would like to explore today that has to do with also another unpublished paper that is titled Challenging Victim Sanctification in, in an Era, I guess that I missed the word here, in an Era of Harm Avoidance, Allegations, Taboos and Implications for Management. And, uh, I, I mean, I've read the paper, it's very interesting. Uh, you talk about the work of people that I've already had on the show, like Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, where they talk about the victimization culture uh, and also you refer to to people like Jonathan Haidt and the coddling of the American mind right so uh, I guess this is very relevant for us to talk to talk about today because um, I mean at least people have been noticing that we're sort of living in this victimization culture where we pay too much attention to victims or at least take their word at face value uh, and I mean I, I'm not sure to what extent this has to do with some sort of feminization of our culture or something like that in the in the sense that maybe uh, women tend to be more empathic and tend to care more about uh, victims than men. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm already speculating a little bit here. But uh, and anyway, uh, you focus on the article on management and uh, the sort of issues that these uh, arm avoidance might bring to uh, workplaces, let's say. But, but then you also refer to the fact that these might also have some negative effects on the level of, for example, scientific production and things like that. So could you give us a broad overview of the sort of topics that you explore there? Yeah, so this is a paper with uh, my colleagues Maya Grasso and Stephen Grover, and it's in a management journal, so we focus on that, but I definitely think it has broader implications for society and the science as a whole. And so what we argue is that um, along, like following the lines of like Lukianoff and Haidt and you know Campbell and Manning, that we are in a present day culture where we highly are vigilant to, to harms and we want to eliminate harms from society. And because society has become increasingly peaceful over time, so the rates of violence have gone down, um, we are more prosperous than ever. Essentially, we look for subtler and subtler sources of harm. Um, so we are motivated to alleviate those from society, which is a very benevolent um, motivation. But now, as we eliminate the more egregious forms, uh, we tend to focus on um, 
like subtler and you know more emotional manifestations of harm and you know it might also be related to uh, Engelhart and Wellsel have this um, have a lot of cool data showing that as you eliminate existential threats from the world so concerns about survival starvation you tend to then focus on emancipative values so you know um, are you supporting your own autonomy so it might also be reflecting that general shift as well um, and I think the processes are related um, but we would argue in a modern time we basically treat um, victimhood, we have risen it to, um, and we treat it as though it is a sacred value. Um, so we term this victim sanctification, that we um, basically, we cannot open it up to empirical scrutiny or question. Once someone is placed in that victim role, they are granted a lot of moral license, and we, um, and it's partially because we're motivated to eliminate evil from the world. And we also tie it back to um, the dyadic template of harm. So once we cast someone as a victim, it becomes increasingly difficult to see them as a perpetrator. Um, we just see them as um, deserving sympathy and aid, and you know, rightfully so. This makes us kind people, but it makes it difficult in interactions that are ambiguous because once we've classified someone as victim we look automatically for a perpetrator so even gray gray and wagner have shown that we have this like pattern of dyadic completion where once we detect suffering we look to fill the role of perpetrator so even if we can't find a perpetrator we might assume oh there was a, a malevolent god that did this but probably in modern society, we might use terms like this is a you know systemic form of harm. You know, we're looking for someone to blame when we detect suffering. Um, and so we argue that for a variety of reasons, this is going to interrupt our ability to adjudicate impartially claims of mistreatment. So for one, we have broadened our conceptualization of mistreatment following these trends. So We've eliminated these egregious forms, so now we look for um, psychological forms of suffering. So, um, as Lilienfeld has brought up, you know, we now have this concept of microaggression, which are, you know, they're defined by their their definition. Doesn't matter um, whether it's intentional. It doesn't matter whether it's conscious. It just you have communicated something hostile to, towards a protected group. So it, they began with um, racial minorities, but it's expanded to women, um, sexual minorities, obese individuals. Um, and basically it's, and so what this trend exemplifies is that now our definition of harm is no longer tied to intention. Um, sometimes some of the definitions for microaggressions say that they're not even conscious. Um, so it's based on the subjective suffering, um, which makes it a very nebulous definition, um, which is going to make it very hard to adjudicate, you know, impartially whether harm has occurred. If we take it as evidence, once someone feels as though they have suffered, that is our definition of suffering. You can see the same pattern with, um, with bullying. That term is expanded as well, where it used to refer to like physical harm, but now it's it could include, you know, ostracism, ignoring the person, giving them critical feedback. So we've just widened our definition. Um, another reason that this victim sanctification is difficult is because 
we have these heuristics, these cognitive heuristics where we don't, we're not well prepared to handle ambiguity and harm interactions. So we just look to fulfill the roles of victim and perpetrator. When oftentimes social interactions are complicated, they're ambiguous. Um, someone might have unintentionally harmed someone or they took it particularly negatively and we're not well prepared um, to handle that nuance. And then there's also the case where um, there's a wide body of literature demonstrating that characteristics of the victim might place them at risk of being found in the victim role. So, um, for example, individuals who are more prone to neuroticism or disagreeableness tend to be more likely to claim mistreatment, suggesting either that they are more likely to perceive malintent on the part of others or they are just more likely to find themselves in conflict. So if you're low in agreeableness, you might just like keep arguing in multiple cases or just assume someone's out to get you. So we are ignoring the perceptual component of harm and how there might be certain features that make us more or less likely to detect victimization um, or malintent on the part of others. So based on these, we um, outlined some solutions that we think might be helpful for uh, management researchers, but for the broader scientific community and society as a whole. Um, so basically saying that, you know, uh, so one problem that might, uh, or one issue that might exacerbate this trend is the overwhelming um, preponderance of liberals in the social sciences. So there's data that a substantial um, portion of the social scientists are liberal rather than conservative. Also data showing that um, social scientists are willing to discriminate against conservative approaches um, to science, whether it's a grant proposal or um, reviewing a manuscript. Uh, social scientists endorse that they would be willing to discriminate against even conservative job applicants. So what that would suggest is there is going to be um, an ideologically rooted like limit on the empirical landscape. So we might be more inclined to accept um, scholarship that supports this victim sanctification narrative and findings that don't comport with that perspective we might issue or denigrate or actively suppress. And so that's going to create a very biased um, uh, depiction of the empirical landscape. We will have a lopsided view of the human condition if we um, apply inconsistent standards of evidence for palatable versus unpalatable findings. And so this is an issue if we want to identify the primary predictors of both solutions and the issues at hand. So um, these are going to be the ideological assumptions are going to become entangled into our models and we're going to create policies off of those, which might not always be the best solution. So um, there are some emergent data showing that some of our very well-intended policies aren't predicting their um, desired outcomes. So for example, there, um, there are some findings suggesting that the beneficiaries of affirmative action policies don't do as well if they are placed in a setting beyond their skill set. So it's just saying that when we're placing individuals too far beyond their skill level, they actually aren't doing well. Um, and so this is a well-intended policy that we probably followed based on the data, 
which might be lopsided. And perhaps if we had a more um, interactive dialogue, we might be able to assess and more critically evaluate how effective these policies are. Um, there's also some data showing that, for example, like equal employment opportunity statements discourage minority applicants because they assume they're going to be served as a token. They see this, oh, we're a non-discriminatory employer, and they might become skeptical that, oh, maybe this means that this is just going to be an office full of white men. Um, and so in order to adjudicate which policies are actually effective, we need to allow um, really rigorous uh, empirical standards. And if we are holding different findings to different standards, we won't be able um, to reach that nuanced understanding. Um, there are also issues with promoting this narrative of victimization. It might be exacerbating social conflict. So there's work on competitive victimhood where when people assume that they are victims and they place themselves in this victim category, it basically morally licenses them to engage in more aggressive responding because they feel entitled to. They feel like, well, this I'm making the world just again. I am a victim. I have been wronged. Um, and therefore, it is right for me to retaliate. And so, um, so it's Noor and colleagues have shown that like groups will become interlocked in conflict because they both see themselves as the victim of one another and they compete to advertise their relative um, oppressed state, which only exacerbates conflict. So if we apply that to individuals, what that might mean is that we are um, emphasizing all the ways in which we have been harmed and discounting the ways in which others have been harmed and it might lead to more aggressive, um, aggressive responding or undermine, um, undermine empathy. So um, Francis Fukuyama has this um, cool argument that, well, it's an interesting argument that, for example, her emphasis on um, aspects like intersectionality, which were very, they're very well intended because intersectionality focuses on, okay, well, the experiences of a black woman are not gonna be the same as an experience of a black man. So it's focusing on like levels of oppression. And although this is like very well intended, there might be some negative consequences for empathy. So if I say, as a Hispanic woman, you could never know what my suffering is like because you're a Hispanic man, then we're only emphasizing our sources of difference rather than any commonalities um, and it's saying you don't get to know suffering, the suffering that I have, my suffering is different from yours, rather than focusing on as like a human, uh, shared human suffering perspective. So if instead I had said to you like, you know what it's like when people don't treat you as though you're competent, that's really frustrating. It's frustrating for me and frustrating for you. We could then bond over how distressing that is and then focus on, well, how do we eliminate that process rather than being like, you don't get my suffering, I don't get yours. It's very like, it's putting up walls, perhaps. It's an empirical question. It would be interesting to look at data. Like when we take these intersectional approaches, how much do we care about other people's suffering? Because the narrative is essentially saying, I can never know the suffering of this person because they have a different lived experience. Um, from me. And so we argue, well, perhaps maybe if we focus on shared human experience and like our shared sources of suffering, we might foster um, more empathy. And then we also look at um, people's concerns that we need to 
when people are concerned of being accused, we need to take those concerns seriously and recognize that if we have a very, very broad definition of harm, it is stress-inducing. So um, if you say, well, don't worry, you won't be accused of sexual harassment if you're not a perpetrator, that's a very nebulous, <laughs> nebulous instruction, right? It assumes we all have the same definition of sexual harassment, and it would be lovely if we did, but human interaction is very ambiguous. And so there are some um, emergent data showing that following, for example, the Me Too movement, um, people expect men to follow kind of a Mike Pence type rule where um, they're less likely to hire attractive women or and don't want to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with women. And so it suggests that there might be, you know, some kind of backlash from this nebulous definition of harm because people would rather err on the side of caution rather than put themselves at risk of accusation. And we can easily blame them and say, like, how horrible of you. But if we don't have a, a concrete definition of harm, then I can understand why people would be concerned about an accusation. And if an accusation in today's society means you're going to get dismissed from your job, then people, this might be a natural consequence where people are just incredibly cautious and it might have more negative consequences, such as like facilitating the old boys network and, you know, not having we might be creating the very problem we're trying to eliminate or exacerbating the problem um, with these approaches. Um, and so basically taking a more, um, arguing that we should use science to adjudicate, okay, what are the best policies? What are the issues going on here? Um, and perhaps forming a more um, impartial definition of harm to allow us to all know what is like appropriate versus inappropriate con conduct so that way we don't have to be as vigilant and we can foster, you know, um, more one-on-one -on -one meetings with women and, and whatnot. Um, so for example, maybe it would be useful when defining this code of contact or code of conduct, like taking a Rawlsian veil of ignorance approach to harm. So would I define harm the same way when I don't know who the perpetrator or the victim is? You know, if I remove all of those concerns, what is what is harm and what is not harm? Because I would expect that we might have different definitions when a man is in the perpetrator role from when a woman is in the perpetrator role. And we might not even want very strict definitions of harm if it mean that when men accuse women of sexual harassment, they have to be easily dismissed. Right, we wouldn't want that. So we may not. I don't know. I don't know what people's value judgments are. But like, it would be important to adjudicate. Okay, how do we want to define harm in a way that we can all abide by, so that way it becomes more clear, and we don't have to see these like very, like reactive and cautionary responses where people are afraid of getting in any ambiguous situation. Um, and just in general, promoting a perspective, maybe returning to the original definition of tolerance, which referred to, you know, accepting discomfort and pain and enduring through um, through something trying, you know, accepting that human interaction is not perfect. Like, people aren't, um, we don't always know the intentions of others, and we naturally, we might be more inclined to assume malintent when it's not necessarily the case. So I know at least for me, anytime that I've harmed someone, when I'm in the perpetrator role, I look back and I say, like, no, that wasn't intentional. Please believe it wasn't intentional. I know I didn't intend it, 
But yet when we're in the victim role, it's so easy to say, of course they intended to harm me. They were out to get me. So rather than just attributing malintent, maybe thinking like, okay, um, how did I contribute to the situation? And is it really fair to assume that the person intended to harm me just because I experienced harm? So taking an approach of tolerance, like, okay, people are going to slip up. They're going to be, um, you know, poorly worded interactions. And that doesn't necessarily mean someone intended to harm. And perhaps even mindfulness would be useful, you know, not to just like, commit to our immediate emotional response, I feel harm, therefore you are evil, and then instead reflect on that, like, okay, am I fairly, am I interpreting this fairly and generously? So giving people more charitable attributions rather than just engaging in our hostile attribution bias, you know, I am harmed, therefore you are evil. Yeah, that's all very interesting. And I was just thinking while you were talking, I mean, if you keep, if we keep following this concept creep route where the concept of harm in this case keeps expanding and expanding and expanding until it means nothing basically, or it means everything, I, I don't know, perhaps uh, those are the same thing. Um, I mean, there are situations where uh, th there are a lot of different phenomena that people talk about. You referred to, for example, microaggressions and systemic oppression and things like that. And when you refer to systemic oppression, one of the things that came to my mind is uh, how feminists nowadays, for example, look at numbers of the sex distribution uh, at the level of certain occupations, for example, and they assume immediately that uh, if men are in advantage, let's say, because they share a bigger percentage of that occupation than women, then women are being harmed, systemically oppressed in some way, shape or, or form. But th that's interesting because people are assuming that, but the solutions that they propose, like quotas, for example, uh, in certain cases, they might even harm the people that they might want to protect, in that case, women, because let's say that the reason why men and women choose different occupations, it's, it's just based on the fact that they have different personality traits, different interests, and things like that. I mean, it could be the case that we get those distributions, of course not 100% of the distribution would be explained by that because there's always a bit of discrimination and this and that, but even so, we might be sort of forcing people that don't want those occupations to have them just because in our heads our ideal society would be like a 50-50 split and that would be perfect gender equality or whatever. And I mean, what I'm trying to say is that uh, even by trying to forcefully protect people from harm that is not real harm, we might be harming those same people that we want to, pr to protect, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that we need to think, I, I mean, it's to the extent that there are barriers, then we definitely need to eliminate them, whether they are, um, I mean, we know that people rely on cognitive heuristics. So even if it is the case um, that, you know, like people might assume, 
you know, men make better leaders based off of their gender stereotypes, those biases might cut the other way too. So like men are underrepresented in, um, in like nursing, for example. Um, those biases might cut the other way and those are um, unfair and penalizing. Um, and so we should eliminate those when they are there. But we are less apt to endorse explanations that don't use this narrative of harm, um, of intentional harm. So for example, they've done some cool studies where they looked at, um, they did like a million Uber drivers and found that a gender wage gap of 7% emerged um, because men were more willing, men drove faster and men were more willing to drive in like the more dangerous neighborhoods. Um, and so these differences emerged in contexts that were, you removed um, uh, systemic discrimination as a possibility and differences emerged. And so we are less likely to investigate and look at those types of sources of disparate outcomes um, and to your point that, yes, if we just implement these policies, like 50-50 quota, um, well, then, I mean, in some ways that might be thwarting women's agency. If it is the case that they preferred a certain career over another, then they might not do as well when they are arbitrarily forced to pursue some career that they didn't. Um, and so we wouldn't like, we don't like it when people say, oh, hey, you can't join this career. But why do we like it when they say you should join this career? Like in both contexts, we are saying we are giving prescriptive norms about what is valuable. And so I do think like, for example, the extent to which we emphasize like women in STEM, yes, it's important if there are barriers, we should definitely eliminate them. But perhaps by like emphasizing the underrepresentation of women in STEM, we might be painting this narrative that um, women are less competent on the whole. And that's not true. Women tend to actually excel in a lot of domains that we don't talk about. You know, like they have better episodic memory on average relative to men. They have better verbal uh, abilities. Um, and so I think that, you know, we just assume emphasizing these um, these disparate outcomes is always going to produce better solutions. And perhaps it's not. Perhaps we just need serious empirical examinations to see what is the best approach um, for handling these discrepant outcomes. And to what degree are these outcomes a result of systemic barriers, which we should try to eliminate, versus um, just like individual autonomy and choice. So there's a large sex difference in interest in things versus people. So that to me seems relevant when we evaluate these careers and look at the sex discrepancies there. You know, we don't get as worked up when we see um, men being underrepresented in these people domains as much, you know, and so perhaps we just need to consider both explanations. Like I think we focused a lot on one side of it and that's really good, but it's okay to have these other forms if they are contributing to the disparate outcomes. If it's a result of individual's agency, then who are we to presume we know better? You know, if someone told me, oh, you need to be an engineer, I would say, screw you, I want to be in social sciences. You know, I wouldn't like it if someone told me that. So um, maybe we should be cautious about what our prescriptive solutions are and just remove barriers but support autonomy. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, maybe it's the close to the same thing as um, affirmative action, right? As you talked about before, because basically uh, we are sort of forcing certain people into a college in that case that are not well prepared or that even don't uh, or even don't have the enough cognitive capacity to go through college or that specific degree or something like that and then i mean th that's also not helpful to those people that we want to help yeah and so if we want to be most helpful then it's important to acknowledge those negative externalities and study them so it might be the case that Perhaps if they just had like a summer booster camp program, preparing them before they get thrown into this college environment, they would do just fine. But at first we need to acknowledge these, um, these issues and then look at solutions and see, okay, what actually promotes thriving and what does not? And the only answer is going to be data. Yeah. Okay, so Tanya, maybe it's better for us to end the interview here because we've already gone over 90 minutes and here in Portugal it's almost 9 p.m. and I'm also getting a bit tired. So um, <laughs> maybe we could leave some other topics for another time somewhere in the future because this is very interesting. But I, as I said, I'm getting a bit tired. So um, before we go, would you like to tell people what are the best places on the internet for them to find your work, these things that we've been talking about and others? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter as uh, the handle is Tanya Arlene. And then you can find me on ResearchGate. But I will note that most of the papers that we talked about today are under review, so they should be coming out soon, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, so yeah, but I would say those are the primary sources. Okay, great. So I will be leaving all of that in the description box of the interview and links directly to at least the papers, the papers that are already available. So uh, Tanya, again, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show and I hope to have you again, as I said, somewhere in the future because I really love the topics that we talked about. So, Thank you. It was so much fun and an honor. I appreciate it. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and subscribe to the channel. You can also support me on PayPal or Subscribestar. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Yane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingart, and also my three producers, Isar Weber. Rosie and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.